Good morning, everybody. This morning, we are continuing on with our series uh, called Crossroads. It's a journey to Easter, and we are uh, looking at the events in the last few days of the life of Christ, and indeed, even the last few hours of the life in Christ, and the decisions that he made leading up to his death um, on the cross, and then ultimately his resurrection on Easter, which confirmed his deity and, and, and affirmed that he was one that his words can be trusted, his life can be uh, one that we can learn from. And so that is something that uh, for this whole series, what we're leading towards that point of Easter and what we want to celebrate. We want to look at what are the decisions that Jesus made and those critical points in time that led to this momentous event called Easter, and then what do we learn about our God from that? What do we learn about what he went through, and how does that cause us to respond? So that's what we're looking at here today, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to be today. And, and when, one thing I love about this series is for us here at Seacoast, one thing that we say is we exist to help people discover life in Christ. That is why we do what we do. We, want, we believe that life in Christ is the best life to live, we believe that it's a life given from him to us. And so that means for some of you, discovering life in Christ for the very first time. For some of you, that means maybe returning to the faith. I, I encounter and talk with many of you who say, you know what, I grew up believing. I just kind of wandered away for one reason or another. And I've been returning to the faith. And, and we want to be a place where it is safe for you to come back with those sometimes questions, sometimes even wounds, sometimes just scars from the past, but to re and engage with Christ and find that there is life in Jesus. And, and also, for some of you, maybe you've been following and you've been walking with Jesus for many, many years, but we believe that discovering life in Christ includes whatever phase of life you're in. You know, going from a single person to a married person, what does it mean to have the life of Christ in you now that you're married? Or what does it mean that you move out of the house and now you live with a bunch of roommates? And, and how does the life of Christ, how do you experience his life in that situation? Every phase of life as we grow, it changes. But we believe that Jesus provides us what we need to experience the life as God designed. So that's why we're so excited about this series, why we love to study and learn more and more about the heart of God. So I want to uh, look into that today and invite you in Luke chapter 22. Now where we are in the story from the last couple weeks is we've learned that these are the events that are taking place during what was a Jewish feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread which is celebrating the original exodus, celebrating the time when the, the nation of Israel is led out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt into freedom. And so Passover week was all about remembering that God was faithful to them, that God showed up and took them from slavery into freedom. It's also a, a metaphor of what God does for us spiritually, taking us out of our spiritual bondage into freedom. And so that's why the events of Easter taking place on Passover have significant meaning, uh, very intentional why God chose this. So we just saw the last couple of weeks, Jesus now just celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples and proclaimed, he took the elements of Passover that were to remember God's deliverance and also to look forward to a future Messiah, meaning God's anointed one who would once and for all provide ultimate deliverance for his people. Jesus took those symbols and said, these are pointing to me. Everything you've been waiting for, everything we're longing for is pointing to me. And it's a, uh, it was a commonly held belief among the Jewish people, and it is to this day, that the Messiah, God's anointed one, would reveal himself 
on Passover. So significant that Jesus on the, during the Passover meal reveals that he is the one they are waiting for. Now that's where we are going to pick up our story today. They just had the meal. Um, he sat down and, and, and said one of his disciples, he said, Judas is going to betray me. Judas gets up from the meal and leaves. We know that he already had made an arrangement, uh, Judas did, with some of the uh, leaders of the high priest to say, I will betray, I'll hand Jesus over to you. Essentially what that means is I will let you know when there is a time when Jesus is not in the crowds and a safe time, I will lead you to a, po- a point in which you can arrest him without all the crowds interfering. Because the priests knew who Jesus was. They saw him often, but they needed to find the right moment to arrest him so that it wasn't going to cause a greater uproar and they would be able to do it kind of quietly, um, really in secret. And so Judas says, I'll be the one who will betray Jesus to you. He leaves the meal and the, uh, Jesus and the disciples just finished eating. Last week we looked at how they were missing the point of the whole meal and Jesus, that is the point. That's why he is coming, why he wanted to give his life. And now here we are in verse 39. The disciples and Jesus left their meal, the Passover meal, which often would be like a four-hour event, maybe even longer. It involved just a lot of food, remembering the story of the Exodus, singing hymns and psalms. And now they walked from there, and that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 39. It says, Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. He knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove the cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening Jesus. And in his agony, he was praying very fervently, His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not fall into temptation. So we're going to just stop right there for a moment. So let me set the scene again. So they just had their meal, and now they says they left that place and walked to the Mount of Olives. Now, where they had their meal is it was customary to eat the Passover meal in Jerusalem, We know that it was a home that had a two-story home or something, had an upper room, so it was probably part of the wealthy neighborhood, um, located right near the Temple Mount. That's about where it would be. So they walked from there to the Mount of Olives, which is just about two blocks away. I have a couple photos for you. Um, So this is a picture of Mount, uh, from Mount of Olives, and it's showing in the background, you see the big wall. That is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Um, Part of that wall would have been there at the time of Christ. Uh, The rest of it was built in the 1400s, but that's... Uh, Go back to that one we were just at there. So you can see the olive grove. Uh, This is why it's called Mount of Olives is because it's believed to be an ancient, um, really olive orchard there. It has significance all the way back in the Old Testament. Uh, It's mentioned many, many times and it has tons of significance for the Jewish people. So the Mount of Olives from there, that's the Temple Mount. Now you can go to the next one. This is the picture of the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount. So there, those churches were not there when Jesus, um, in this story. So, but in the time of Christ, those, uh, that hillside is what we call the Mount of Olives. And on the top of that is the road to Bethany. So just if those of you who kind of know the biblical story, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, he walked from the top of that hill 
um, straight down and then right about to where you see this picture being taken, there's a gate into the city. Um, and so that's kind of the route you can see. It's, it's not that far, a couple blocks away to walk. And uh, just so uh, another kind of interesting note for those of you who like interesting notes, um, on the right side of your photo, you can see it looks kind of, gets really gray. That's a cemetery. Um, and it's an ancient cemetery. It's been there for at least 2,500 years because there's some of the tombs to the prophets you read about in the Old Testament on the, located on the bottom of that hill. Um, that seminary, cemetery, seminary, <laughs> there was times in my life when they, I confused them both. Um, <laughs> that cemetery uh, is uh, it's for the Jewish people. They believe when the Messiah reveals himself and returns that he's going to return on Mount of Olives. So the Jewish people, uh, that is a very desirable cemetery to be buried in because the belief is the Messiah will come back on Mount of Olives and raise the dead and they want to be, literally want to say, I want to be as close to where the Messiah is as possible. So it's a popular cemetery to be buried in and it's one that has long history and tradition. So Jesus walked from about where you're seeing this picture here with his disciples to somewhere on that hillside. And uh, this account does not tell us it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we do know from other accounts that there was something about this Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane essentially is a Greek term uh, that means an olive press. And they do have, uh, we do have evidence of from the time of Christ, there is an area there where there is an olive press where they harvest the olives and made olive oil. And so it's just that area is named after the olive press. And so uh, we know it's somewhere on that hill. So Jesus walks with his disciples to this hillside to pray. And it says, as was his custom. Now we know that on the top of the hill was the town of Bethany, where some of his very close friends, Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus, they lived up in that town. Um, it was a, a road in which if you were to go to Galilee, often you'd go up there through Bethany and either down to Jericho or you'd head north through Samaria from there. So it was a route that Jesus took often. There was probably an area of the garden that he enjoyed most of all, that he said, hey, I just love this spot uh, to go and to pray. When my family lived in Jerusalem, we had spots around the city uh, old city that were fun places or a good place where we like to go relax or go to pray, go to reflect. This would be very similar. So Jesus goes to the garden, to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And he tells them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Now we're going to get into that question in a moment. But I want you just to kind of have it linger in your head. What is the temptation that he is he talking about? Because he's already predicted that he would be betrayed by them. He already predicted that Peter would fall away. He already predicted that they all would scatter and, and, and leave him that night. So he knows that's gonna happen. So is he praying that they, is he asking them to pray that that doesn't happen? Or is there something deeper going on? And I believe that there's actually something else that he's asking them to pray. We're gonna to get that, to that in a moment. But so he asked them to pray. Do not fall into temptation. And then he steps aside and prays on his own. And in this picture, this is one of the stories in Scripture that I've read many times, but I never really sat with it. Never really focused too much on it. To ask, what's going on here? And it says Jesus falls down on his knees and he prays. And that was not traditional at the time of Christ. They would pray standing up, looking to heaven. So there's just this weight on him. 
that he falls to his knees to pray. And the writers here, Luke says that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. Let's not make too much of that other than there's so much just agony of him. He's sweating so much, it's dropping on the ground. He's, you can feel the intensity of the moment. Some of you have been at times in your life when you could probably relate. Maybe there's a loved one who was fighting for their lives or you're facing just this a tremendous financial situation where you're on the verge of losing everything and your prayers are just, God, please, 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 I need you to step into this moment. Many of us in this room know what that feels like. And here we have this picture of Jesus falling to his knees and saying, Father, please, 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 please. I'm feeling the weight of this moment and this intense prayer. See, for me, it's when I think of the Easter story, I believe it 100%. I believe that Jesus died for us, our sins. He took the weight of all of it. But sometimes for me, I forget about how significant that must have been for him. Because I think of the fact that Jesus was fully God and we believe that. But even in there, we also know that he experienced life fully as a human. And sometimes I overlook the human side of Christ, even when I think, well, I know he suffered and died for me. But I kind of have this voice in the back of my head that says, but he's God. That was his job. Of course he could endure it. I know it probably wasn't great, but, you know, but I sometimes forget the humanity of Christ. And I forget that in the moment he's looking at this, he knows what's about to happen, and he's thinking, is there any other way? The Apostle Paul writes about Jesus and says, though he was fully God, he writes this in Philippians chapter 2, he didn't consider equality of God something to be grasped. In other words, he gave up that part of him and taking on the form and the likeness of a human, experienced life like you and I experience life. So he's, this picture here in the garden is of this great agony. And he's pleading with the Father. And he says, God, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, just take this cup from me. Now, what is the cup? What is he really facing? Why is there agony? I want to point your attention to Isaiah chapter 53. I have some of the verses on the screen for you. Because I think this helps us to understand the full weight of what he was going through. And Isaiah chapter 53 is one of those passages in Scripture that was written at least 100 years before the time of Christ. Uh, we believe that it was like 500 years, but even a you know, scholarly debate, we know that it's before Christ. And this is a prophecy about what the Messiah would endure for the people. Now, to this day, in the Jewish people, many rabbis wrestle with this passage, and they'll do one of two things. One, they ignore it and say, yeah, it's problematic. Or two, they'll say, well, this is not really talking about Messiah. It's a metaphor for the nation of Israel. But we know at the first century, the understanding of this passage was it was about the Messiah. Even Jesus, in fact, quotes this in relation to himself and what he's about to do. We know that the very first Christians believed this, who were Jewish people who converted as followers of Christ, believed this passage to be about what the Messiah would go through for you and for me. Jesus understood that this is what he would go through. So I want to read some of Isaiah 53 to you so that you know this is the backdrop of what Jesus is thinking and facing. 
verse 3 of Isaiah 53, talking about what the Messiah will go through. It says this, he's despised and rejected by man. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. All of our sins, all of humanity's consequence of our rebellion against God is laid on the shoulders of the Messiah. Think of that. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Verse 11, after he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Look at some of those phrases there. Despised, rejected, pierced, crushed by his wounds. The sins of us all are laid on him. He's oppressed, afflicted, like a lamb to slaughter. The Lord's will was to crush him and to cause him to suffer. I don't know about you, but if God revealed his will to me and it used any of those phrases, I think I'd say, Lord, let's, let's talk this one through a little bit. I mean, come on, crushed, led like a lamb to the slaughter. You see, Jesus now in his humanity is feeling the weight of this. And the sins of the world are about to be placed on his shoulder. How many of you ever uh, got in trouble in school growing up? Okay, you don't have to confess. <laughs> okay, confess. All right, how many of you? Yeah, there you go. I, you, you know, I, I don't know if, about you, but there, I can remember one um, time. Okay, so I, I, I knew my principles well growing up. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> But I remember as you're really young, the first time you kind of get in trouble, you kind of feel that weight, that little knot in your stomach that, oh, what is going to happen? I know there's um, a girl that I'm married to who can remember the one time she ever got her name on the board in school. The one time. My teachers, when I walked into school, they saw me and they went, Ryan, name's on the board. I'm like, what? I just showed up. And they're like, I know, but trust me. And they were right. But and that one time in her life, she remembers it and it still stands out. <laughs> For some of you, can you recall a time when you know you messed up and you just felt that weight as you were waiting for the punishment to be passed down? The punishment that is passed down. I don't even know if they do that in schools anymore like they used to. We used to have to write lines. Anyone have to write lines? It was like, seriously, like three of us? Oh, man. You guys were, have been saints your whole life, apparently. Be like a hundred times, like, I will keep my mouth shut in school. I don't even think they can do that anymore. Because you just type it once, copy, paste. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole way, I just remember that kind of feeling of, and this is like I was talking in class. Can you imagine now, the picture here is the Messiah is feeling the guilt of the world that's being placed on his shoulders. Literally taking on what we deserve. 
So now with that in Isaiah 53 as a backdrop, can you see how Jesus falls to his knees and says, Father, take this cup from me. And the cup in the Old Testament was, it represented God's wrath that was about to be poured out. God, take your wrath that's deserving of all humanity. It's about to be poured out on me. Can you take this cup from me? Can we find a different way? Can we just, let's just think about this one more time. And then the next words he says is, yet not my will, but yours be done. And we see here that sometimes God's purpose doesn't always avoid our pain. That God's purposes don't always avoid our pain. For me, I want God's purposes to always avoid my pain. I want it to be easy. And I want to tell you this. I don't think God takes great pleasure in our pain. If he is a loving father, and I believe that he is, he doesn't take pleasure in seeing us suffer. For those of you who are parents, how many of you take pleasure in seeing your kids suffer? We don't. I, I try to when I say, hey, you're going to have to face the consequences for your decision, but I hate it when they do. If I could have my way, my kids would never experience any pain. They would just think life is always perfect and easy, and they live in San Diego, so it is pretty good, <laughs> and they don't know what it's really like sometimes. Even little things when we say, hey, Put on a coat, it's cold out tonight. They say, no, I'll be fine. The love and logic side of us is supposed to let them suffer and be cold. So I let them go out and be cold. But you know what I want to do? I want to pack that coat and have it ready so when they get cold, I can rescue them so they don't suffer. It's so hard to say, okay, you're just going to be cold tonight so you learn. So you can grow through this. It's the heart of a parent that we don't want our kid. We don't take pleasure in. But God's purpose is for us, don't always avoid pain. Sometimes it's the very thing that grows us, that shapes us, that gets us where he wants to go. And trust me, none of us will have to endure what Jesus had to endure for us. And he understood what he was about to face. And he says, take this from me. But then he says a little prayer at the end of it. But not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. He goes on through the story. I want to show you the rest of it. Verse 47. While he's still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and one who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And those who were around him saw what was going to happen. They said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them took off out a sword and struck the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who'd come against him, said, have you come out against me with swords and clubs that you would, just as you would against a robber? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So right after praying, they're in this moment of praying, and, and according to the other Gospels, actually there was three moments when he went to the disciples and said, hey, wake up, keep praying. He went back to pray. Came back and said, wake up, keep praying. And after the third time, we see that he was betrayed with a 
by Judas. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the purpose was that they were trying to find Jesus in a moment when the crowds were gone. This was the night of Passover. Everyone would have been in their homes in the city of Jerusalem. They would have been asleep. They had been celebrating all day long. The crowds were gone, and it was in the secret, under the cover of darkness in which they came to betray Jesus. And I've often thought, why does Judas betray Jesus with a kiss? This in the ancient world was a sign of respect and honor to greet someone with a kiss. And so Judas comes up and kisses him, which is the beginning of all the betrayal. It reminds me of in Proverbs where it says the wounds of an enemy, not a big deal, but the wounds of a friend, they cut so much deeper. And here Jesus is betrayed by one he called friend. He just shared the meal with him. And they arrest him. And I want you to see that very last thing. It says, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Jesus could have changed this moment, but for some reason God gives this moment over to essentially Satan. It says, the powers of darkness are yours in this moment. I think of the story, the uh, line in the Witch of the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a scene in the book or the movie, for those of you who prefer that, when Aslan gives his life for Edmund. And before they kill him, you have the witch and all of her like ugly looking animals. They do such a great job describing the scene. And they celebrate in the middle of the night thinking, we have defeated, we have Aslan. I consider this, it was the hour and the power of darkness were handed over for a moment. And the spiritual forces of evil thought they had the victory at this moment. As they hand over Jesus. He willingly goes. He willingly is betrayed. But this was all a bigger part of God's plan. At this crossroads, Jesus could have changed the narrative. He could have done this differently. Jesus could have gotten out of it and said, let's try this again next year. I'm not ready. We even know, he says in Matthew 26, I could at any moment call on all the angels and they will overcome you right now. Jesus could have gotten away, but he willingly goes because he knows it's part of God's bigger plan. So here's a question for us today. Because you and I aren't gonna face the same thing that Jesus faced. We don't have to take on the sins of the world, and that's a good thing. We don't even have to take on our own sins upon our shoulders. That's the good news. But what can we learn from this moment? What is it, how do we respond? I want to go back to what they, Jesus asked his disciples to pray. Look back at that in verse 40. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And I think, okay, what is the temptation? I think Jesus modeled it through his prayer. It was a temptation to not trust God at his word, to not believe in who, what he said he was, who he says he is. In fact, the account of this in the book of Mark and in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, it adds a little phrase at the end of it. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, I know you want to do what's right. I know you want to live your life for me. I know you want to lay down your life for me. I know inside of you, you don't want to sin against God. I believe that Jesus looks at us, and for most of us in this room, that is the desire of our heart. 
We want to follow God's will. We want to surrender to what he wants. Jesus says, I get that about you. The spirit's willing. but The flesh is weak. How are we weak? How does that show itself? In Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of scripture, there's another garden that's mentioned. It's a garden of Eden. It's a picture of the way things are supposed to be. And Adam and Eve are walking in the garden. They enjoy a perfect relationship with God. There's no separation. There's no sin. And God, in this picture, in the garden, says, you can eat from any tree you want to eat from in this whole garden. It's all yours. Anything except for one tree. The one I don't want you to eat from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, and whether this is an actual tree or it's symbolic, what he's saying is I don't want you to, the one thing you can't have is the ability to judge, to choose what's right and wrong or knowledge of good and evil is the ability to stand in the place of being a judge. You can't do that. You can't bear that weight as a human. But you can have anything else you want. All the fruit and everything you need for life, you can have. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, anything you need, and you never feel shame or guilt or anything. Now, the very beginning of chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis says this, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said to you, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the very first thing as he twists it. She picks up on it and says, No, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the one tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to her eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave it to her husband and he ate. And their eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees to hide themselves. In the very first garden, we read this story, and they're faced with the same question. Can you trust that what God has planned is actually good? Can you trust that God knows what he's doing? And, and the question that they had was either here you can believe God at his word and trust that he's providing you everything that you need or you can say maybe there's something better here. Maybe there's a different way. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe God's holding back from me. And so we have now to this day this symbol of, uh, in modern world, we use an apple as a symbol of this temptation. And, and I don't think it's, you know, like this bright, juicy apple. Somehow they went like, well, actually, that looks really good. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> but the question was really, do we really trust? Is God holding something back in your lives? The prayer that I think Jesus really, when he said, don't fall into temptation, is, hey, you're going to betray me. You're going to see some things happen here. You're going to see me suffer. Now, your temptation you're about to experience is can you trust and believe that I am still in control? Can you trust that I am the God over even this, the worst situation you could possibly imagine? Or are you going to start to question and wonder and wander off? Can you trust me? The temptation for many of us is default 
our default is to go to the kingdom of self. I don't know about you, but most of temptation in my life is rooted in what makes me feel better, look better, be more comfortable, avoid pain for myself, avoid discomfort. It might even be just to, because, hey, I don't want to be inconvenienced by another person right now. Our default is often to go to kingdom of self and not think about kingdom of God. The temptation for the disciples here was to think this life, if this is the Christian life that Jesus is presenting, I'm going to go fish again. I'm going back to Galilee. That was a lot easier. I didn't have to deal with this. What is it for you? Where is it where God's asking you to trust him? What are the situations in your life where you're thinking, yeah, I know you say you're in control, but I got this one. I know that you say that you, you, you're good, but Lord, I don't know about here. I know you tell me to trust you, but right now I'm just going to trust myself because at least I know what I'm up to. Jesus says, pray that you do not fall into temptation. And I believe the first response to this is, Lord, help me trust. Help me trust you. If the, our prayer that we pray every day is just that, we're off to a good start. Lord, help me trust you. I'm not sure if I can, but help me. I think the other part of it is this. It's help me stand. Help me to stand up if I do trust you. Give me the endurance to keep going because this isn't easy, Lord. This isn't easy. I often think in the Christian life, it's, there's been so many times along our way in, in my own marriage and in life before marriage, just as once I became a Christian, there's times I felt like I need to step out in my faith. I remember the first time I gave some of my money to the offering plate and thought, that's kind of weird. <laughs> what are you going to do with that, Lord? I remember the first time I actually stepped out in faith and shared my faith with another person. How strange that was. I went through this period of time in high school where I was like, God, would, whoever you put in my life, I want to tell them about Jesus. I even remember one night I was driving home. I was working late and I drove home and I got to this um, Taco Bell and I felt like the, I, this is one of those moments when you're really passionate about the Lord and, and I felt like it was like midnight and I felt like the Lord said, hey, share your faith with the person at the, you know, who's giving you your tacos at midnight and I thought, that, oh, that'd be awesome. So I went up to the you know, drove up and the drive through they gave me my meal and went, how you doing? Great. How are you tonight? Great. Thanks. Drive away. <laughs> and I felt so convicted that I went back around and drove back up to the drive through and said, um, okay, so I just want to share something with you. Like, how strange is that? <laughs> I don't know what happened to that person. They probably was like, man, those weird Christians came back around bought an extra chalupa just to tell me about Jesus. or <laughs> But there's points in time along the way when big and small were asked to step out into trust. And I don't know if God was that night saying, I want you to do this, or if it was the hot sauce. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but I know that when we step out in faith and say, God, I, I believe you're leading me here. I don't think he's ever like, oh man, you missed that one. Boy, I'm disappointed in you. 
I can just see the Father in heaven saying, the big smile saying, that's what I mean. Step out. Believe that I'm a God who's in control of these things. Believe that I have all things in control. Step out. Be a person of passion for me. Love me. You might do it imperfectly, but trust me, I'm with you, and I want to tell you something. Nobody has ever come back to me and said, I'm not going to hang out with you ever again because you've been telling me about Jesus. No one on the basketball court has ever said, hey, we want to quit playing with you because you don't argue with us or fight about everything. No one's ever said that. And the guys I play basketball with, I invite them here all the time, like, hey, you guys should come. I, I just want to invite you in. In fact, I told them their part. I said, this is, I actually count you as one of our life groups. It helps the numbers. Anyway, so. <laughs> but. None of them have rejected me for my faith. Sometimes I get in my head and I think they will. I actually think they will. And I know the world we live in right now, it's pretty polarized and I know it's pretty tough. And there are things that we can get caught up in when you look online, you look at social media and you, sometimes you're afraid to share that you're a Christian because there's a lot of other implications that aren't necessarily true that sometimes are tagged to us. And sometimes I think, oh, maybe I need to shy from, away from that. And I think, no. Do I trust that God, the Father, is over all things? I'm not, I'm not going to ca- get caught up in the distorted, tainted view of Christianity. I'm not going to live that view because that's not right. That's not biblical. That's not Jesus. I'm going to trust my Jesus can defend himself. And the best of my ability, I want to step out in faith and walk with him. Can we be a church of people who learn to pray this prayer that we don't fall into the temptation to say, God, we're, we just, we need a, our kingdom. We can't trust you with yours. Or should we be praying, Lord, help us to believe that you are everything you said you are and that all of your promises for me are true. Help us believe that, Jesus. I want to invite the worship team to start making their way up. I've been rereading a book that I read a long time ago, uh, an old Brendan Manning book. Uh, it's called The Tenderne- Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. And in it, he has this prayer that he tells you to pray, and the prayer is this, Lord, thank you for everything. That's the prayer. I think often we want to thank God for all the good things, but he says, no, if we trust that our God is up to something, try the prayer that says, Lord, I thank you for everything. One author said it this way, for all that has been, thanks, and for all that will be, yes. That's his prayer. For all that has been, Lord, thanks, and for all that will be, yes. I'm there. I trust you. I want to follow you. And when I fall, I trust that I fall into your hands. When I fail, I remember the good news of Isaiah 53, that all of my sins have fallen on you and you've borne them. You took them. They're yours. I don't have to repay the price that you already paid. So Lord, when I succeed because I stepped out in faith, thank you. And when I fail, thank you because I fall on the God who already paid the price for me. There's nothing more amazing when we really reflect on this marvelous love of God. When we really think the extent of what he did for you and for me. 
And that love, that God, that good news invites us to a life of faith, a life of response. That's the church that I love to be a part of. That's the faith I want to be with. As we end here, I want to invite you to stand as we um, just pray and sing one final song. And we stand now just kind of in, in honor of God, in honor of what he's done for us, in honor that he endured and didn't look for a different way out. And he's invited us into the story. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. As we look at a familiar story, one that many of us know really well. Lord, I thank you that even when we don't take it as, we take it too lightly and we don't dive in and understand the full weight of it, that Lord, even in that, we find grace. But Lord, this morning, help us to remember what you have done and what you've invited us into. And God, this morning, help us to trust and help us to stand as we journey with a God who's given us all things. We thank you and give you this time. Amen.